welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over a series of four weeks, and which we conclude today, we've taken the opportunity to look at Jesus through the four Gospels. They have been slightly different. We've approached them in a different way, and they give us a fuller picture of Jesus himself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John help us in our understanding of who Jesus is. And for us Christians, it is crucial that we understand who Jesus is because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. How we see Jesus hugely influences our day-to-day walk with him. So having already looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, today we, we begin looking at John. And this is probably the most wonderful and yet the most complex of all the Gospels. Some of the themes that he has a go at are amazing, and we will have a look at some of them today, hopefully. We're gonna begin by reading a passage from the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, first 14 verses, and it says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two other of his disciples were together. Simon, people, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in on the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. But Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But now none of the disciples did ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The Gospel of John is clearly different from the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because of their similarity in content and structure and style. Synoptic meaning they can be seen together or they can be seen as similar. The synoptic gospels all have a similar geographical structure starting in Galilee, moving through Samaria, and ending up in Jerusalem. However, 92% of the material found in John's gospel is unique to his gospel and not found anywhere else. So quite different. The gospel is anonymous, as are the other three, and John's name is not mentioned in the gospel. And in it, actually, John the Baptist is just called John. Confusing somewhat. But it is interesting and, again, fascinating to 
to note that there are other expressions and insights as to how we know who the author of this is. Although it doesn't make sure that we, it doesn't say John as the author, we have clearly, it's clearly inferred. For example, we see that it says the disciple who Jesus loved. It is called by the son of Zebedee. The disciple, and this is a bit of a strange one, who was known to the high priest. Or, again, as John is referred to here at the end of the chapter, says this, and so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, you have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Again and again and again through John, we have referenced to that fact that this John is the author. All the signs point to him being this other disciple. An early church father for calls it for who it is in AD 70, uh, AD 170, Aeneas, Irenaeus, I should say, says, John the disciple of the Lord who leaned on his breast also published a gospel while living in Ephesus in Asia. So it is John the disciple's gospel and is generally believed to be written somewhere around 90 to 100 AD. And again, it is generally accepted that it was the last of the four gospels to be written. And many believe that John knew the other, three, the other three gospels were in circulation so that when he sat, as it were, to write his, he wanted to come at a different perspective to the others. The others are written in chronological order and sequence of events, but this is not quite so chronologically lined up. The broad outlines of the four Gospels are the same, but there are some significant differences. Some of the things that we will see in John's Gospel that we don't see in any of the other Gospels include, put it up here. Instead of familiar parables, John has lengthy discourses long discourses that he has with people and he has with his disciples. In place of the many miracles and healings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John uses seven carefully selected miracles which he calls signs for us. Thirdly, in John, the ministry of Jesus revolves around three Passover feasts, whereas the others only revolve around one. And then we have in John's gospel a number of the sayings. We have the I am sayings. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are all unique to John. And he is trying to communicate something of Jesus that the other gospels haven't yet approached. It's fascinatingly different. The Gospel of John is one of the most, I think, intriguing and fascinating books in the Bible. This Gospel contains some of the most profound expressions of the deity of Christ, and yet it contains some of the most concrete expressions around his humanity and who he is. It is the most poetic, and yet it is the most philosophical writing of the New Testament. Many of the words uttered by Jesus in this gospel are unique to John. There are no parables whatsoever. And as I said, he talks in lengthy passages. The gospel of John presents a unique perspective on the person of Jesus. In this gospel, there is no explanation of the physical birth, no direct mention of his baptism, nothing of his temptation or the Last Supper. Jesus, uh, John, I should say, begins in an altogether 
different way. He doesn't try to introduce us to Jesus. He doesn't try to bring Jesus surreptitiously into the story and into the narrative and then suddenly appears and says, oh, by the way, this Jesus, he is the Son of God. That's why he's here. That's the reason. He doesn't do any of that. No, John tells us right up front, he doesn't, as it were, even begin from below. He begins from above. His eyes are turned heavenward from the outset, and he begins to tell us the story of this magnificent, amazing person that is Jesus Christ. He gives us some of the most sublime words that are ever written about Jesus in his gospel. I just want to read the out- opening passage, which probably all of us will know. This is John 1.1. No Bethlehem scene. No angels, no nothing at all. It just says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him we have life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I remember as a young child, I was always exhorted, you need to read John's gospel. If you're gonna read one gospel, read John's gospel. I didn't understand a word of it. I remember reading those opening passages, the opening chapter of that, I'm thinking, I hope it gets better because I am totally confused at this moment. I could understand the other narratives because they talked about the birth, etc. but that used to confuse me. But as I have got older, as I have learned to understand something of the awesomeness of John's writing and of who Jesus is, this has become so incredibly dear and precious to me as a believer. You know, John is a, is a sharp, sharp shooter. He tells it as it is, and he leaves us to make our own conclusions. I think the best way that I can think of this book is not so much to see it as a book, but to see it as a destination. He takes us on a walk, and he takes us, as it were, on a a ramble around the things of God, and John is our tour guide, as it were, in this gospel. He says to us as readers, you've got to see Jesus for yourself. There is so much more to him than you can imagine. You can't begin to imagine all that he has done for you, and he is far, far greater and more magnificent than you can ever begin to imagine. And that ethos comes across throughout the whole of John's gospel. It's like, you've gotta see what Jesus is doing. You've gotta see who he is. You've gotta listen to him. And the awesomeness of Jesus comes across in this gospel in an incredible way. You see, I don't believe that John didn't write to merely communicate trustworthy data, which he did, but I believe that he wrote to generate transforming praise and worship that leaves us with no option but to stand before Jesus and say, man, we love you. You are incredible. And this is the theme throughout this whole book. From his prologue to his epilogue, from the beginning to the end, John sets out with two, to answer two primary questions. Who is Jesus? 
and what has he come into this world to accomplish? So John attempts to fix our eyes on Jesus and says, I'm gonna take you on this journey. What John does in this opening prologue of chapter one is to take us further back than any of the other gospels. Matthew takes us back to Abraham to the, in his first chapter, but that's not far enough. That's not big enough, as it were, for John. For John is saying, if you really want to understand who this Jesus is, if you really want to grasp something about the glory of our Savior, then you have to go back to the very, very beginning. You have to go way back, and even that isn't further, far enough. Abraham doesn't cut the mustard whatsoever. He says, you have to go back to that moment when matter was formed, when particles came together, and atoms and molecules and neutrons and all those subatomic particles and forces came into existence by the creative word of God. That's where you have to start. That's what he's saying. And he says, and when you go back to there, at that moment, Jesus was already there. He wasn't created, he was already there. He was already in existence. So when everything that we see, the cosmos, the universe, the stars, everything was put together by our creator God, Jesus was already there. He was in the midst. It was the, he was there at the beginning. You see, Jesus, John wants us to know, is not part of creation. He is uncreated. He is not part of the world. He is not part of the universe. He is not part of the solar system. He is not part of the great universe in which we live. And that's what he's trying to communicate through John 1. Because at the very moment when this creation was brought into being, Jesus was already there. He was already there. He already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. And you say, so why is that so important? Well, for this reason, because if Jesus isn't God, then I am still in my sins. If Jesus isn't the true God, the very God of the same substance of the Father, then you and I are lost in our sins. If we don't have a Jesus that is God in every sense, then we're wasting our time in that sense. Jesus is the very begotten of God and John wants us to hear that because he knows that it is important that we grasp who Jesus is. It is when we know who Jesus is that it affects every day of our life. When we go to work, how we treat people, how do we speak to people, how we live in the, in the, in the consequence of eternity. But you know, it gets more complicated. But John does such a great job, and I'm not sure that I'm gonna do such a great job that he does. But John says, yes, I've started, but I wanna draw you in a little bit more. You know, you see, Jesus is not the only one who is God. Gotta be very careful with my language, you're very careful. But he is not the only one that is God. Yes, he is God, but he is not the only one who is the one God. He is God, but at the same time, he is with God face to face. Literally, John says, Jesus is with God the Father facing each other in fellowship and harmony and incredible love. That there is the one God, but within this one God there is plurality. There is one and within that oneness there is more than one. There is God the Father. And we've just been introduced as it were by John to God the Son. And although the prologue doesn't mention it, there is God the Holy Spirit. And John wants us to understand that before the creation of the world, before any matter or particles have come into existence, 
the word of God, Jesus, the Logos, existed and was in union with God. That Jesus was in fellowship and in harmony with the Father. And do you know why he is telling us this? Because as it goes on to say in verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made himself known. This God who is so transcendent, who we will never ever know unless he does something about it, has made it possible for us to know God, to see God, and it is because of Jesus. You know, John asks, do you want to see what Jesus is like? Of course you do. He doesn't put that in. I'm putting that in. And John is saying, well, if you know what God is like, if you want to know what he's like, then see Jesus. Listen to his words. Follow him. Study him. Love him. Worship him. Adore him. Be his disciple. Do what he says. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus has been enjoying the closest possible fellowship with the Father for all eternity and has come to this world to show each and every one of us what the Father is essentially like. Well, now why is this important to John? Because one of the things that John wants to tell us is that Jesus' great ministry in redemption, but is also to create, to create something wonderful. For us today, as followers of Christ, we are part of a new creation. If any man, and this is Paul speaking, this is not John, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And he says, what has taken place in the heart of man and in the believer and the, and the, and the follower of Jesus Christ is the act of recreation that we have been redeemed, that we have been restored, that we have been recreated. And John wants us to know that this is happening because of Jesus and what he has done. See, I think this is why to understand John's gospel, we've got to have an understanding of, of, of creation and what he talks about there. You see, to understand what he's trying to say here, we need to jump forward to chapter 20, and we come across two little verses that are a little bit tucked away and not often spoken upon, but Jesus says this. Jesus breathes on his disciples, and he says, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even as I am sending you. And he said, and as he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes, breathes on his disciples, and it is often unrightly seen as a, a pre-announcement or a declaration of intent of the coming day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will be poured out. But I think, I just want to throw this out there, I think that there's more going on here than just Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, hey, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come. I think John's delving down somewhat deeper here. So why does Jesus, why does John, I should say, refer to this act? None of the other gospels really refer to it because just as John, I believe, had been reading the first chapter of Genesis as we would know it, and he wrote it in his pro prologue, I'd like to suggest that John has also been reading the second chapter of Genesis as he writes this prologue too. And do you remember what happens in the second chapter of Genesis? Well, God created out of the dust of the ground a human being and he breathed into him. I believe that John is trying to tell us about the significance of the original creation, but he says there's an even greater one about to happen. And Jesus was there at the beginning of time when the word was with God and the word was God and he existed, but also he is giving us signs that there is something more incredible yet to come. 
And in this little two-verse passage in chapter 20, he gives us an insight. And it may be here that as John refers to Jesus in this gospel, he wants us to know that he is the creator, the recreator, and the sustainer of all things. And he's giving us a clue, you know, this, can, this too is the first of two books that John, in that sense, John wrote. He wrote others, but these are the two main ones of, of John and his gospel. He wants to tell us of something that is yet to come. He's also pointing us forward to something that there's going to be a new heaven and there's a new earth. That one day that we are going to be with him because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in this incredible book, John is doing something here. He's telling us about Jesus being there at the beginning and Jesus is going to be there. Well, there's not going to be an end. But this is the awesomeness of who this Jesus is. And he will recreate and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth which will last forever and we will be part of it and it's because of Jesus. This is the awesome Jesus. This amazing God who came among us that he wants us to know about. So where do we land this fourth and final book? Where do we start to bring this four-week series to a conclusion? And I want to just take the time that we have left to take some practical steps out of John's gospel. Those of you who know me well, I'm never gonna let theology get in the way of some practical teaching. But I just want to some, some of the things that have really hit me out of John's gospel anew as I have been looking at this over these last few weeks. And some of the things, I just wanna stir the pot a little bit. So let's see how it happens. First of all, I believe that John is more concerned about life in Jesus than sometimes the kingdom issues. Now, I have to be careful here, for while the other gospels emphasize the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, John instead emphasizes the importance of the new life that is found in Jesus more than anything else. I'd like to suggest that John chooses the day-to-day walk with Jesus over the spectacular and the remarkable. That's what the evidence of his gospel leans itself towards. Not that there has to be a choice, but one is always seen as being more glamorous than the other, and sometimes we can get out of balance. Sometimes we want the remarkable, the supernatural, at the detriment of doing the day-to-day stuff of life with Jesus. And it isn't an either-or, but there is definitely an emphasis here in John's gospel around the day-to-day stuff of life. I get the strong impression that John in his gospel is a fan of the steady, the consistent, the dependable, the reliable. It's what we call the boring yet wonderful stuff of life. You see, it's from John's gospel, which you will know, it says these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we read it. No one comes unto the Father through me. But actually, and I've referenced this before, it's actually in the Greek it says, I am way, I am truth, I am life. It's not a one-off option or something that we choose that every day Jesus is wage, every day Jesus is truth, every day he is life. Everyday stuff is found in Jesus time and time again. It's not I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we get saved and that's it. But the day-to-day, nitty-gritty, sustainable interaction of life is found in Jesus, and this is what he's telling us in this gospel. The word life appears a total of 36 times in John's gospel alone. 
That's more than twice as much as it appears in all the other gospels combined and more than in any other book in the New Testament. Even if we were to add up all the mentions of life in Paul's, all of Paul's letters, he only uses the word one more time in all his writings, 37, than, Paul, uh, than John does in his gospel. Now, kingdom, on the other hand, only appears five times in John's gospel, whereas it appears 55 times in Matthew, 20 in Mark, 46 in Luke. The evidence talks to us that John is more focused on life with Christ than some of the other issues. Now, this can be a little bit controversial, but I, I want to suggest that sometimes God is as caught up. God wants us to be more, as it were, focused on some of the day-to-day stuff of our life than we can with kingdom and kingdom issues. That as we do the day-to-day stuff of life, then as we see success, as we see attainment, as we see fruit, this creates a platform from which God can grow and develop fruitfulness in us. Now again, it's not an either or, but I believe the takeaway for me out of this gospel is that as we take care of life, as we take care of our commitments, our obligations, our marriages, or as we cultivate our singleness, or we take care of our businesses and our areas of accountability, we pay our dues and do life well, that as we build character and substance, we create a foundation for being found in Christ, that he is way, he is truth, that he is life that we become reliable in the things of God, and if I can say this, not flaky, that God calls us to be people of substance that pursue life with him as his friend. Letting all these things be the platform for our life. Not that we have to achieve a level of excellence before God can do anything in us and through us, but our credibility in the mundane makes room for the kingdom to manifest itself. That God wants us to build credibility in life so that he can move in a supernatural way through the just an already, already credible vessel. As again, it's not about achievement, but it's proving ourselves in the small thing. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus appears in the role of a human being, which is especially important because he's already told us about his role in the Godhead. The presence of God in the life of Jesus of Nazareth enabled Jesus to overcome the temptations that arose from contact with the world and from contact with the flesh. We see Jesus overcoming things on a daily basis and it's the same presence, it's the same Holy Spirit that was with him is with us. That we can be overcomers and it's in the left, right, left, right, precept upon precept, building of reliability and substance in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul expresses this concept in the words, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. John says that just as the branch cannot bear fruit, that the fruit abides in the vine, it needs to abide in the vine, so a Christian cannot live a truly impacting life unless Christ abides in us and that takes time that takes effort and sometimes it takes longevity but it's not either or that it means there is hope for even every one of us even when we feel at our weakest 
I think John's gospel is incredibly practical after an incredibly theological start. Secondly, I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. John focuses primarily on communicating that life, that Jesus, I should say, is Messiah and not about his miracles. There's a lot of talk in this gospel about the discourses. There's a lot of talk about who Jesus is. And there is very little evidence for his miracles. And this is important to know for Jesus, for who he is, rather than what he can do. I sometimes wonder if God ever gets somewhat upset with me especially as I seek his face, oh Lord, can you do this, can you move this, or can you shift this person, or can you break out in this situation? I sometimes wonder if God gets fed up with me and he says, just talk to me about who I am. Talk to me about how we're doing, rather than having a God who does all these things for us. Often, for many years, I have threatened myself that I will do a sermon primarily for myself entitled, What a Great God We Have at Our Disposal. For in truth, I have to be honest and say sometimes that that's how I live my Christian life to my embarrassment and to my shame. And God calls us not to serve a God for we have one, a great God at our disposal, but that we have a God whom we worship and we seek him for who he is, in this context, the Messiah, and not what he can do for us. It's John gets to the grips with this, I believe. Time doesn't permit to unpack this much today, but John calls us to a place of awe, of admiration, of worship, speechlessness, wonder, and veneration than he does to anything else. This is the writer's desire for us to grasp more of who this Jesus is. Of yes, of course we want to see the miracles. Yes, we long to see more of the outpouring of the the miraculous and the prophetic. But they need to be a byproduct of a people who seek his face and not just wish to see the moving of his hand. Thirdly, John addresses misunderstandings about Jesus. One of the many things I love about this book, this gospel, is the writer's willingness to let us into conversations that Jesus has with his followers and with those who were against him. He does it time and time again, and this gives us a picture of a very secure person who is willing to engage in the real issues of life and not simply dismiss them and say, well, just trust me. But also I think that he is giving us an insight how we are to live. When Jesus taught, for example, three very quick examples, when Jesus taught about his body as the temple, we see Jesus engaging with dial- in dialogue with those around him. He says, destroy the temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they come back at him and say, what? It took us 46 years to build this and you're gonna raise it up in three days? I love the fact that Jesus allows misunderstanding, even contention, even disagreement. When Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, he's met with the response, how can anyone be born again? And Nicodemus says, surely they cannot enter a second time into this mother's womb to be born. Jesus could just have well said, well, that's the way it is, son. You just have to suck it up and believe me. And what would that have done for Nicodemus? So Jesus engages him. He brings him. He talks about it. And then the classic, the woman at the well in John 4 Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you don't even have anything to draw the water out. What are you on about? You talk all these wonderful language and all these wonderful words, but you don't have the practical wherewithal to do it. 
And I believe John is giving us some wonderful insight into a Jesus who wants to draw us in, who wants to spend time with us, who wants to welcome our disagreements, who wants to welcome our, our misunderstandings, our, our doubts, our fears, our insecurity, that he is not nervous about what we're gonna say to him. I have to confess, sometimes people will ring me up and say, Chris, can we have a coffee? And I just suddenly get really nervous and think, oh, heck, what's this about? Perhaps that's because I'm unspiritual. Or somebody texts me and says, oh, can we meet up? And I'm thinking, oh, can I be busy for the next six weeks? Shall I confess that stuff? I'm not sure I should, but it's true. I don't see that in Jesus at all. I just see that he welcomes us in. Henry Nouwen, the great Catholic priest of the last century says, answers before questions do damage to the soul. I believe God is comfortable with our questions, with our questionings, with our misunderstandings. And Luke wants, uh, John I should say, wants us to meet this Jesus. He wants us to know that this Jesus is willing to embrace us, who is willing to face the misunderstandings and all the questions that we have. I don't know, maybe it's just part of the, the, the time when I was raised, but you know, when I was growing up, one of the last things you ever did was really ask questions about God. You just accepted it as true because the man at the front said it. Or if you didn't understand the word of God, well, you just, that's what it says. I don't think God calls us to blind faith. I believe he calls us to seeing faith and not blind faith. I believe he welcomes our questions. I believe he welcomes our misunderstandings and I believe he wants to work those things through with us as he does like nowhere else but in John's gospel. I have found that God enjoys journeying with my doubts, with my insecurities, with my questions, even with my disappointment and with my anger and with my shame. I don't think he is angry with us at all when we come to him in this way. I believe and I, he longs to invite us to come into that relationship that we talk with him in, in such an intimate and personal way and we only find it in John's gospel. So as we close and conclude this week, I want to do so by finishing where John does. I just thought maybe it's a good place to finish where John finishes, and that's what I'm gonna do, and where the gospel ends, which in some ways is an odd place to finish, but it's where we began this morning with our reading. It's on a beach, and there is a setting that is a familiar one, but a strange place nevertheless to finish. You know, we are told by people who study these things, the powers of our senses are beyond explanation. Just doing some research on in the week and it was incredible what our, our senses can achieve or where they can take us. The sight, sound, smell, taste and touch are all so powerful. And any one of these can transport us back to a time of our life that brings good memories and not such good memories. For some, the smell of alcohol takes us back to a time of sadness and of abuse. For some, the sound of a song transports us back to intense sadness or joy where love was accepted or perhaps love was rejected. There is an 80s song that says, the song remembers when. It is so true, you can hear a song that you may not have heard for 20 years and it'll just take you back to a time and place. Taste can carry us to 
places that we had long forgotten. Two incidents of this in, in my, my own life that I live with. When we, we lived in California for uh, 12 months or so, and we rented a, a accommodation from a guy who had served in Vietnam, and he'd been through an incredibly difficult time, and it had left, his, uh, left a, a mark on his life. But during uh, the time that we were there, the story would happen, or the story would be told, and, and we saw that a couple of times, that he would be walking down a street, or he'd be more likely to be in a market, and a smell would accost him, and it would transform him, or transport him back to the time that he was in Vietnam. And he would be found on the side of the road, Crawled, um, rolled up into the fetal position and he would be found crying. That the memory of that smell triggered something that took him back to Vietnam and it overwhelmed his life. And he had to live in the consequences of this. I remember the second one, I was about 10. And I was went with my father to, to a neighboring farm. We were gonna buy some sheep. I don't remember the, much of the details around the purchase. But we were in, it was, uh, it could be any day in Wales, but it was it starting to rain when we were in the shed. And, um, <laughs> and we have those sheds, it was like corrugated, corrugated iron. I don't know what we call them, corrugated iron. And I remember that as we were there, it started to rain. And you know, the rain started to hit on the corrugated island, iron. And the gentleman, lovely farmer, just said to my dad, he said, John, can we move outside? And my dad said yes. My dad knew the reason why I didn't. I just did what I was told. The, the, the farmer was in, retired from the British Army, and he had been held captive in Japanese prisoner of war camp, and the sound of rain on the corrugated iron transported him back there, and it affected him mentally and emotionally. Say all that to talk about the power of the senses. Today we finished the series around a charcoal fire, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we find ourselves here. Well, in fact, we have two charcoal fires, two significant events in Jesus' preparation of his disciples occurred around the smell of a charcoal fire that is only recorded for us in John's Gospel. The term charcoal fire from the Greek anthrokia, which is where we get our word anthracite from, occurs, as I said, in the New Testament in two places, both in this Gospel. The first involves Peter's denial of Jesus. It says that they were gathered around a charcoal fire and Jesus was denied by Peter three times. The second involves Jesus' restoration to ministry after a miraculous catch of fish which we read at the beginning. Interesting to note that all four Gospels tell us about Peter denying Christ, but it is only John that tells us about him being restored. I wonder why it was John's privilege to tell us that. Not even Mark's gospel, which is Peter's gospel in so many ways, tells us about this significant event. So back to the charcoal fire and the smell thereof. This little detail of personal memory is rooted in the sensory, sensory experience of the aroma, the distinct aroma of a charcoal fire. It links these two events both in terms of their response and in regards to reminding them forever what happened around these two fires. As direct as, it, as he can, John is telling us that the smell of a charcoal fire evoked the memory of Peter's three denials until it is supplanted and replaced in his memory by what Jesus does here on the beach. Musicians, please, can you come and join me? 
He would always have that smell of the charcoal fire, the smell of failure in his nostrils. And here he has it again, the smell of the charcoal fire on the beach. But then he denied Christ, but now he's about to be restored. At a charcoal fire, Peter had betrayed Jesus. At a charcoal fire, the Lord restored Peter. At the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus does the incredibly important work of calling Peter back to himself, back to a place of forgiveness, back to a place of ease with himself, back to a place of peace of mind, restoring a situation that probably had played on Peter's mind for weeks and weeks. Peter's original call to follow the Lord where he fell is now being replaced by go feed my sheep. Incredible that we have these two charcoal fires and Jesus restoring what was broken. I reckon that Peter's story is my story and your story too. We all need to know that the risen Savior is willing to welcome us back when we have disappointed him. The Jesus of John's gospel is phenomenally personal and yet he's incredibly divine. He is probably the most personal of all the gospels. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He never gives up on us even when we give up on ourselves or other people do. There is a bit of Peter in us all. We are weak when we face temptation. We have dropped the ball so many times that we can't remember how many balls we've lost. And perhaps we've even allowed the fear of failure to paralyze us and to rule us out as being effective in the kingdom. We may never even have assumed that God really loved us because we have messed up so much. You know, John finishes his gospel with an incredible story of redemption, which is in essence the story of the four gospels that Jesus came and he died, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that you and I believe in him, we will not die, we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.